That was an excerpt from the Seattle Opera's premiere of A Thousand Splendid Sons, sung by Karen Meshigian and Maureen McKay, and conducted by Viswa Subaraman. At this moment in the opera, the characters of Mariam and Laila, united in their hatred of their abusive husband, make plans to run away together, only to find out at the bus station that the man who agreed to help has betrayed them. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm your host, Stephen Anthony Rawson. And on today's episode, I speak with composer Sheila Silver about her opera, A Thousand Splendid Sons, which is receiving its world premiere at Seattle Opera right now. This is a really powerful story, and if you haven't read Khalid Husseini's 2008 book that this opera is based on yet, I highly recommend it. Sheila and librettist Stephen Kitsakos have done such a marvelous job bringing this story to the stage. We're also very fortunate today to be able to feature many excerpts thanks to Seattle Opera, so let's dive right in with my conversation with Sheila. Well, I'd like to start by saying that I'm really excited to go and see A Thousand Splendid Sons at Seattle Opera. It's being premiered this month and next, February and March. Uh, the libretto is an adaptation of Khalid Husseini's book of the same name, and the story takes place in Afghanistan, in Harat, and in Kabul. And it follows the lives of two women, Mariam and Laila, who become bound together amidst numerous tragedies and horrible acts of violence. They develop a really deep friendship. And it's a very poignant and dramatic story with a lot of complexity. I want to start just by asking, how did the idea of turning this book into an opera begin? I listened to it for the first time as a book on tape. I happened to be have a very long commute to Stony Brook University where I was teaching, and you know, two hours is a long time to be driving down a highway and listening to books on tapes is kind of what I did. And when I heard this book, it was like, this is so emotional. This is so powerful. The, the emotions are larger than life and operate. You've got to have a reason to sing. And it's got to be, it's got to have some level of super emotion, right? For me, that's what opera has to be. It has to be strong emotion because we're going to tell the emotion in music, the music is the characters. Mm. So I listened to this book and I was tears were streaming down my face. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is incredible. And I guess what I was loved about it so much was the devotion and love and bond between these two women. Somebody said yesterday, you know, well, you see love stories between men and women, and you see love stories between women and women, and you see love stories between men and men. But this is a love story between two women that's not about sexuality at all. It's about mother-daughter bonding love relationship and what they do for one another. And I just found it really profound. So it took a while for me to decide that this was doable. I mean, it was a, it's a very complex book, and the first character comes in, and then halfway through the book, the second one comes in, and how do you deal with that in opera? But once we decided that it could work, and once we got the rights from Khaled Hosseini, and that took some work also, then Stephen and I spent about a year, 10 months, meeting you know, every two, three, four weeks, depending, and kind of talking through, okay, what's act one, scene one? We didn't know at the time what how many acts or how many scenes, but, you know, we started to shape it into, mold it into moments. What are the most important moments in this book that we can tell the story? And, of course, we end with 
Mariama's execution because we felt that the after story is important. And, and I was I remember reading, I was so glad there was more because I didn't want it to go away yet. I wanted, I needed to be soothed some more. And we, you know, we, we felt that the action was finished when she, when she dies. But I chose to make the ending very peaceful. I chose not, you know, we've had so much violence and there's going to be one more act, but we're not going to see that act of violence. We're going to be in her head because in the book, Hosseini says, you know, abundant peace is washing over me, filling me with joy. I don't want to undermine the sacrifice that she has made, which is the supreme act of love. You know, you read about fathers, you know, jumping into fires to save their toddlers and things like that. You know, they perish and the kid lives. This is that kind of moment. And she's been kicked around like a dog all her life, and now she feels the importance of her action. When she kills Rashid, she's acting. She's taking action. She's not being a victim. She knows that it's going to have consequences, but she chooses that action. And that's very brave for her. And so it's her heroic action, which is out of love. So these two women prevail out of love. Mm-hmm. And that's their love that saves them. And that's a pretty powerful stuff. That's pretty powerful stuff. So the ending is... It's very ethereal. And then the last words on her lips are Lila, Lila. So she's just thinking of Lila, Lila. And I don't know how they're going to stage that, but I, in the score, say no gunshot is heard. Mm-hmm. And the music would never allow for such a thing because it's completely in the ethers. I was really fascinated reading that you you take you've taken several trips to India to study Hindustani music with the vocalist Pandit Kadar Bodas. Yes, I've been listening to his singing a lot these past couple of weeks. It's beautiful. It's so, and it's yeah. so exciting to watch him perform. He's just a, a a master. When did you first start studying in India? And then can you tell me a little bit about what those studies are like? I mean, this was the most extraordinary experience of my life in a way in that, you know, Western music, you know, I started playing piano at age five, college, high school, college, all that stuff, graduate school, travels, Europe, all that. So I did all that stuff. And here I find myself at age late sixties saying, okay, I'm going to be a student again. I'm going to be like one of my students. You know, I've been teaching for 30 years. Now I'm suddenly on the other end of the table. And it was just so thrilling. And basically I, I felt that I, my American 
roots could not take me far enough east. So I started doing some research to find out what is the music of Afghanistan? Because you don't just take on a project that takes place in Afghanistan without a lot of research. I learned that Hindustani music was the kind of classical music. It was brought in the court music in the 1800s. And it's, you know, it's a very, you know, that whole area, Pakistan, northern India, Afghanistan, they're all, they have lots of similarities and lots of intermixing culturally. North Indian music, Hindustani music is all over that area. It is differences in, you think about Europe, okay, there's the French Baroque and the German Baroque and the Spanish Baroque and the Italian Baroque, but they're all, you know, they all have similarities. So this is kind of what that is. I started a correspondence with a distinguished Hindustani musicologist whose blog I had found. His name was Deepak Raja. And it was like I could understand what he was writing. So I thought, okay, I can understand this. And, you know, he took me under his wing. He said I was his project and he was going to find me the right teacher. They understood I'm not going to ever go on the stage. I'm not going to ever sing this music. I'm coming as a composer to absorb and understand the theory of it and get what I could, you know. And when I went, I had no idea what I would get out of this. But I figured it'd be incredible. I'd always wanted to go to India. It would be an incredible experience. And But I, I had no idea how profoundly it would influence my music and not just the opera from then on. So he found the Bodo's family for me. It's not just Ketter, it's his father, who, you know, they, they go in generations, and the mother too. And there's a whole community of students who come every day, and the master sits in the front, and, and I was the American lady, the old American lady, right? Because all the others are like, you know, in their graduate student age, and some people in their 40s, depends, there would be singers in there, there'd be flute player, bansuri players, there'd be tabla players, always a couple tabla players. And Ketter also was a very good tabla player, so he would sometimes accompany his students. In Hindustani music, the voice they feel is the supreme instrument, and all instruments want to sound like a voice. So he sings a pattern, and then the flute plays it, or he sings a pattern, and then the sitar plays it, and that's how they learn. There's no, no no real notation. It's all by ear and memory. And of course, for me as a Westerner, that was a big challenge. And he allowed me to transcribe. And I have notebooks. Every single lesson we ever had, I have them transcribed into Western notation in a shorthand kind of way. I have about 10 notebooks full. And you know, all the students sit down, they all put their iPhones or whatever they have, and they sit there and they record every lesson because they go home and they set, they learn that way. And so I recorded everything, and then I would go home and very quickly transcribe and be ready for the next day. And actually, he was quite surprised that I could do this. After a couple of months, he said, you know, I could teach you about five years of Hindustani music in, these, in this time. We worked a long time, several weeks on the first raga, and then after that, we went faster. And a raga is we would call it a scale, but there's like, I mean, there's 200 common ones and there are variations of them. So I learned maybe 15 and maybe 10. I really, really learned pretty well. And the other five I was introduced to. And so I did only use ragas that I knew. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not, I used one that I didn't, that he hadn't taught me, but that I had listened to a lot on a tape that I had to use.
You had talked a little bit about how in opera, the music is the character, speaks for the characters. Yeah. Basically, ragas are scales, but they have key patterns that identify them. We would call them motives almost. Mm -hmm. And once I had established, so every aria or every new idea or new character comes with her op that opening music. And whatever that music is, if it's based on a raga, then I have motives that came from that particular use of the raga. I mean, ragas can have different kinds of motives depending on how you develop them. But whatever I did with it in the beginning, I then had musical motives that can play through the whole piece. Mm -hmm. So the love music between Lila and Tarek goes through the whole piece once it's introduced. Opening music of um, like a like a compass needle pointing north, a man's accusing finger always finds a woman, always finds a woman. That's the kind of kind of one of the key themes and it's in Mia Kitori Raga and it, it shows up all over the place. And so whenever I go back to that Raga, even if I don't do the exact same thing, it will be similar. It will be its core will be similar. And I didn't know how I was going to do these things. It was very intuitive. But, you know, it's like suddenly, like, suddenly at the very end, I was using Raga Jog, which has a raised, raised and lowered third and the flatted seventh and no second degree. And I used it for the first wedding when, when Mario was forced to marry Rajashi. And then at the very end, after she's killed him, and her music becomes very noble because she's taken this action, She's, and the, her words are, it all stops tonight. It all stops tonight. We won't suffer from his hand anymore. I, I found myself that the, the, her wedding music came back. Her, the wedding raga came back because this was her destiny was with him. And now mm. she's conquered that destiny. And it just, I didn't plan it. It's just like, what am I going to do here now? And then boom, there it was. Yeah. So they, these things thread their, their ways through.
And then it was interesting because when last summer they said to me, we need more music in some of the beginnings of scenes because they need more transition time, change costumes, scenery sets, blah, blah, blah. I had to lengthen the time between when Lila says, I will marry you. And the beginning of the next scene where, where it's a year later and the baby's been born and there she's fighting with Rashid. And I, as a composer, I kind of, let's just start right out with a fight, you know, a real, real fiery fight. But they couldn't change the sets. So I said, okay, so what, what do we do here? And I thought, well, Lila in the interim has gotten married to him, right? And had the baby. So I brought back the wedding music, but in a very dark way. You know, I put it over a complete dissonance and almost from Bergian. Or I, it's really Bergian, it's really Vatsekian, yeah. you know, but it's really out of Vatsek. And I put that in there because she had to marry him. I mean, she had, she was pregnant with Tadek's baby and she she can go out on the street if she wants, but she'll be raped, killed and murdered in, you know, in 10 seconds. So she needed protection and all she had left was this, this baby she's carrying. So. I, so that music came back, and, and we don't. She's not seeing it. She's not on the stage, but we're hearing it. Maybe the audience will remember it. Maybe they won't. It will feel familiar. But it's the tune that came when Mariam got married, but deeper, darker, more ominous. This is, I guess, a somewhat tangential to the story, but not entirely. Did you find after being in India and while you continue your studies in India that you your compositional process has changed? Do you do more vocal improvisation with these ragas when you are writing? Yes, I mean absolutely. Yeah, every okay. while I was composing this opera, I would, if I was knew I was going to say, okay, we're going to do Lila's music, and I would sing Bhagashree. She that's the raga. I, I sang it for several days. I said, okay, now I'm ready to start composing. And then I wouldn't look at the raga. I would just let it be what it is. And it's funny because that particular music, when he first sang that raga, Keter would always say it goes like this, and he'd sing something. And I thought, oh my God, that is so beautiful. That has to be the love music, right? And he sang a certain way. And so in that scene, Lila sings about Tadek, how she loves him. And I did something beautiful for her, but it wasn't what he did. And then I thought, I haven't quite got it yet. So then more of it comes back. And then the two of them, then he sings to her, I passed by these walls, the walls of Ali. And there Uh I let him finally sing almost exactly the way Keter had sung it to me. So it's like evolving. The, the raga evolves into different melodies. And then the tune from the, the um, da, 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 that tune like is everywhere. And whenever you hear that tune, it's that raga and it's, it's their love music. And the audience will absolutely know, like a Wagner light motif, you know what, what it represents. And, and it can be brighter, it can be over darkness, you know, it can be over dissonance. And then we know, uh, oh, you know, it's, not, you know it's, it's all these cues. You're, and the audience doesn't think about it. But, you know, but it's all, it's all the web of textures all coming from the material of the opera.
Actually, quite a bit of music. I think maybe a good forty-five minutes altogether of of the opera from different scenes that you've rehearsed that um, Stephen has on his YouTube page. Yeah, those are all workshops. We had three workshops. The whole opera is online on my website. The whole thing is there. I was listening to some of these different versions. I started with some of the workshops where it was just piano and and voice. I heard some yeah. of those, and then um, and then when I heard the prelude for the first time with uh, the wooden flute. I found that to be really, really moving. And I wanted to ask, because I noticed re- looking at, listening to some of the other excerpts that that wooden flute comes back in, in other scenes. Could you tell me a little bit about that instrument? Absolutely. So I'm using two non-Western Hindustani instruments in the opera. I'm using the bansuri, which is the bamboo flute, which is key to all of North India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. It's everywhere. It's, and I used tabla, which are the Indian Hindustani drums. And though I use those two because those, they were the most frequently in our class and I understood them and I knew how to know more how to write for them. And also I studied the tabla. I had a tabla teacher while I was there. One of Ketter's students was instructed to teach me tabla and, I, and he did. I mean, I, you know, I just got a feel for it. I didn't, you know. But Steve Bourne, who plays the Bansuri, he was introduced to me by Deepak Raja, who's the guy in Mumbai who was taking charge of my studies. And he said, you have to meet this guy, Steve Korn, because he's quite authentic, even though he's a Westerner. And he and he's so and he lives, he said, somewhere in, in Woodstock or somewhere near there. And of course, I live in, in, in Columbia County. I live in, in upstate New York also, the Hudson Valley. So Steve actually lives nearby. So he, over those three workshops in which he participated, he sh- helped shape the part. For him, I, I shaped it for him. So he, you know, we would work. We spent lots of hours working together to shape the part so it was playable on Bonsuri. And he he both improvises has moments of improvisation and he has moments of um, completely. I has to follow the notation exactly. I was wondering how much improvisation was in your score since since it's a a, a very important facet of Hindustani music. Is there is it mostly the soloist? Is there tabla improvisation at all? Or yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, you, you, not not in the workshop. You didn't hear so much in the workshop, but I have an amazing travel player now. She's incredible. You're going to be blown out of the water by him. I'm I'm blown out of the water by him. He is adding a level to this opera that I never thought was possible. And he's not everywhere. You know, he's in the places where it works, like the market scene. Of course, the market scene should be chaotic and happy, and and he's left is blowing it out of the water. It's amazing. So yes, there's tabla. He plays, he's got four tuned tablets. Tablets are tuned, so we have to choose the pitch. But oddly enough, it, we boiled down to a C and a C sharp and an E flat, all around middle C, and F below. Okay. And, he, and then the baya, which is the big drum, that's kind of not pitched. And then he plays a doff. He's got a couple of doffs, which is a, like a big frame drum, which we have. And then he plays something called the undu, which is a Middle Eastern, African, ceramic kind of very quiet, delicate and they're going to have to mic him to cut through the orchestra. This, I mean, these instruments are not designed to cut through orchestras.
key to Hindustani music is where is the mic? Can you hear that? That's like the drone, okay? And here I go. You see how it's changing? Okay, so all 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 Hindustani music starts with drone. So I have I have my little app just practice with. So when you practice, you turn the drone on, then you get your tabla and you put the beat in the one and you start singing. I learned about this first, like the second day I was in India. And mm. I saw it, they all had these apps. And so I got one too and that was it. You know? Oh, wow. The drone. The drone is ubiquitous in Hindustani music. When teachers are teaching, the, the drone is going, it's, it's really the tampura that they're playing, mm -hmm. which is a five-string instrument, but it makes all the overtones. They say that all the sounds of the universe are in the tampura. And in some ways, I, I, I believe it. And I would just sit there listening to this tampura. And they use electric ones too. They supplement with the electric, <clears throat> which are sampled. And I would say, oh my God, how could I make the whole orchestra sound like tampura? I gotta have drones. So the, the the most challenging thing is to find how to sit on that drone, because in Western music we're always changing the bass line, right? Yeah, we have pedal points, but not too long. And so I have lots of drones in the opera. At every key moment, there's like a drone, and they're different. And I orchestrated every single one differently, just to, just for playfulness. You know, like they're all different. I even went so far as to ask my orchestration class, which I was teaching right after I got back, you know, if you heard this sound, how would you orchestrate that? Mm. And so they came up with some really good ideas, some of which I stole. But basically, it was really fun and thrilling to create these washes of sound with all the harmonics flying all over the place in the orchestra. And somebody said to me, why don't you just get one of these? Get a shooty box that generates them. I said, why would I want a shooty box when I have a whole orchestra? You know, that's the... Besides the rock, creating the drone was orchestrating the most challenging and exciting thing to do. I hope they work. I have a whole bunch of different kinds, and I hope they all work. You know, it's kind of Ligeti-esque in a way, the texture, sure. but you have to know which overtones to put where.
curious, just going going back to the opera, I had a question about the about the timing of it all, I would say. The timing that this is is receiving its premiere at the Seattle Opera only a little while, a short while after the US withdrawal and the Taliban reimposing their power and they their um their track record on women's rights is being protested every single day in Afghanistan. What if if anything do you feel like you would like audiences to get out of this performance? Our director Roya Sadat, who were it not for those Taliban would be back in her home country, you know, we had already hired her before the Taliban took over. Uh she was in the United States working on a film about the peace talks, a documentary about the peace talks and following four women delegates between the government and, and forces that be to make so the Americans can pull out and and Roya is a force. Read some of her quotes, you know, and I, you probably have, but she, you know, she says, I want this to be a cry so loud that every human being in the world hears it. And she said, it's not just the women of Afghanistan. It's the women of Iran. It's the women of Ukraine. It's the women of North Africa. You know, so, and we in the West, come on, we, look, there's a lot of people would like to see us stripped of women, you know, knocked down several notches to where we were a hundred years ago. You know, it's, it's, it's men need to bully and suppress women. And I have these figures handy, but there's something like 20,000 calls to domestic violence hotlines daily in the United States, daily. And, and think of all the violence that, that people aren't calling about. And, we, you know, we, we live in a violent world and, and men bully women, you know, and it's in the culture. So we have to be vigilant and this is about women's rights. It's absolutely about women's rights. It's about domestic violence. It's about women bonding. And it's about the strength of women in the face of all that. This opera would not have happened without the work of a whole lot of people and a whole lot of support from various organizations. 
the three workshops were, were mostly funded by NEA, Opera America, and uh, I got a Tolman grant for Opera America Discovery grant for women composers. I got the, one of the first ones offered, and the, the first round of those awards were announced right when I got home from India. So I had, I just sent old music. I didn't have any new music to send them. And then with that money, I made a couple of arias, and that was what got won the, the Opera America New Works Forum, so I got to do the orchestral stuff. And meanwhile, we used that, and we got the NEA. So I have to thank American Opera Projects because they really stood by me and helped me move through all this and negotiate this territory. And in particular, I have to thank conductor Sarah Jobin and director Leslie Swackhammer, who stood by me all three workshops, and we workshopped it, and we presented the workshops to, to live audiences and that's how we got the interest of Seattle Opera and so there were a lot of people all the singers that were singing with me in the workshops I wouldn't be here without the work of all those people it's a collaboration right even from the get-go you got to have your librettist there's the first collaboration then you have your workshops that's the second collaboration now it's enormous and there's enormous talent here in Seattle and and it's just incredible to watch everybody. And I'm very, very appreciative of everything they're doing. And they're, they are so organized and so ready to please it here. It's just an extraordinary experience. That's it for our show today. Thank you all so much for tuning in. All my gratitude to Sheila Silver for taking the time to talk with me. And also to Seattle Opera for generously allowing us to use all these brand new excerpts from the premiere. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org.